you exit your car, and now imagine yourself walking into your favorite coffee shop. You are brought to lucidity at the inhale of roasted coffee beans, bagels, sweets, the morning routine and all flavors. You are waiting in line as you normally do to receive that glorious fix of caffeine and the young lady in front of you is wearing a t-shirt that reads YPS. YPS. You just can't turn away. What could three letters possibly mean? You take one step forth and you're moving forward in line, but the letters are stuck in your head. So you succumb and you promptly ask, excuse me, what is YPS? Uh, you know, this this is my shirt says YPS and it stands for Youth Peace and Security. Um, and what that means is, is YPS, Youth Peace and Security is you know, a movement both global and in the United States to better um, to better integrate youth into peace and security issues, to better bring them and their voices to the forefront of um, you know making peace and security decisions and, and really ensuring that this large demographic of people that are largely very affected by conflict um, actually have a say in what um, in how to address this conflict into into building peace. That was the voice of Megan Schleicher, an advocate of the YPS initiative. I am Christopher LPR, broadcasting for the Desmond Tutu Peace Lab at Butler University. I sit down to a Zoom call in late January with Mina Ayasi and Megan Schleicher. They are both heavily involved in the youth peace and security movement. I will let them introduce themselves and answer some questions regarding the movement. And additionally, are you a dog or a cat person? I mean, we have to know. <laughs> No, that's great. Thanks so much for, for having me on this podcast. I'm super excited to chat with you. Um, my name is Megan Schleicher. Um, I am the Senior Associate for Policy and Advocacy at the Alliance for Peacebuilding. Um, I'll quickly note, the Alliance for Peacebuilding, um, we are a membership organization. So we have over 130 members that work in 181 countries around the world. Um, and we work to build coalitions such as the U.S. Youth Peace and Security Coalition um, with our members and partners um, to tackle these issues that are too big for one organization to take on alone. Um, along with my colleague Amina Ayazi here, I am the co-lead of the U.S. YPS Coalition. Um, and in addition to my YPS work, I also work on other pieces of legislation, such as the Global Fragility Act, um, Women, Peace and Security. And then um, I also work a lot on um, local peace building and integrating local perspectives into U.S. foreign policy and making sure that um, programs and policies are inclusive of local voices. Um, and with cats and dogs, I have a cat. <laughs> His name is Cosmo. He might make an appearance. Who knows? <laughs> Nice to be talking with you again, and go ahead, Mina. My name is Mina Ayazi. I am a Youth Peace and Security Advisor at Search for Common Ground. For background, Search for Common Ground is the world's largest dedicated peacebuilding organization that operates in over 30 countries worldwide. We work specifically on conflict transformation and touch upon a variety of different aspects like religious tolerance, ethnic, um, ethnic solidarity, uh, conflict transformation on all levels of society. Um, I specifically focus on our US-based YPS advocacy, some of our global YPS advocacy, and uh, I work on some uh, protection issues that young people face 
space around the world, including uh, closing civic spaces and protection in programming. Uh, I also work on youth leadership capacity building with our Global Youth Leadership Council that really advises Search for Common Ground uh, to have uh, more meaningful youth inclusion and participation in peace building. And as Megan mentioned, I also co-chair the USYPS Coalition with Megan and uh, lead our efforts to mobilize young Americans for youth peace and security. So. I am also a cat person. Uh, I have a I have a kitten named Zena. She is feisty and sassy. So you may hear a meow on either mine or Megan's ends today. So you may be wondering, what is Youth Peace and Security? The Youth Peace and Security Act of 2020, H.R. 6174, requires the Department of State to coordinate the development and implementation of a whole-of-government strategy to promote the inclusive and meaningful participation of youth in peacebuilding and conflict prevention. This also includes the management and resolution thereof, as well as post-conflict and recovery efforts. The bill has origins in the United Nations, and in September 2019, a report titled Evidence from Around the World, Youth, Peace and Security, a case statement in support of the youth peace and security legislation, states that the world is experiencing a 30-year high in violent conflict. Battle deaths worldwide have increased by 340% in the last 10 years. Moreover, the conflict management systems built to maintain peace and security after World War II are struggling to manage contemporary conflict. Young people represent the world's brightest hope to reverse the trend lines. In 2014, the world youth population between 15 and 24 years of age rose to 1.8 billion, eclipsing the adult population in scores of developing countries. However, institutionally, the prevailing narrative has framed youth as a problem to be solved or to be treated with hard security measures. This results in the stigmatizations of youth, fuels the distrust of government, and sense of injustice perceived by youth. The Youth Peace and Security Initiative demonstrates a need to invest in young people's innovative peace work and their social, cultural, political, and economic participation and inclusion in peacebuilding. In this PeaceCast, we will cover some of the all-encompassing basics of the Youth Peace and Security Act as seen through the lens of two of its national advocates. So, very broadly, um, the Youth Peace and Security Movement um, is an international policy framework that recognizes the positive role young people play in preventing and resolving conflict, countering violent extremism, and building peace. Youth Peace and Security really... Um, has become a movement in 2015 um, when the United Nations Security Council passed Resolution 2250. Um, and they've passed two more um, resolutions since then that recognizes the role of youth on a poli uh, global policy scale. And as you know, or as we all know, so youth populations have really long been at the forefront of grassroots efforts for peace and justice. Um, youth everywhere are creating youth-led movements um, for social justice or for, um, you know, ending conflict. Um, they're creating organizations and networks, and that's preventing these recurring cycles of violence and mitigating the negative effects of conflict in their communities, as well as strengthening social cohesion and, re uh, and resilience. Young people are often taking up vital roles um, in, in these within their own organizations, um, and becoming primary actors in grassroots community development. So bringing us to a smaller scale, um, the USYPS coalition um, was created last year in response to this movement and the, and the need for the US to come up with uh, youth policy. So the, the USYPS coalition is, is currently, um, we have over 50 organizations um, that are part of it and from everywhere around the world. We have a lot of universities um, such as Butler, um, as well as um, you know, grassroots organizations in Nigeria and 
um, a bunch of others, um, as well as a global organization such as U, um, United Network of Young Peace Builders, you know why. Yeah, so it's the, the US YPS Coalition is co-led by Alliance for Peace Building and Search for Common Ground. Um, and we also have a lot of really great support um, from other organizations such as Peace Direct, Generations for Peace, New Gen Peace Builders, Friends Committee on National Legislation, um, and Plus Peace, and UNOY Peace Builders as well. So what our coalition does is we, we not only advocate for the YPS movement globally, um, but we also advocate for um, the Youth Peace and Security Act of 2020. For examples of youth in action, the YPS case statement cites that with the support of the National Democratic Institute, a youth-led cross-tribal council in Yemen successfully resolved at least 12 tribal conflicts through peer mediation teams in 2010. In another case, Moroccan youth mediators trained under USAID-funded program in 2008 to 2009 directly contributed to a reduction in social tensions in Casablanca and Tetouan through youth-facilitated conflict mediations and community dialogue. The bill is a multifaceted effort recognizing the positive essential role that youth play in peace building and peace sustainability. So Megan, who introduced the Youth Peace and Security Act? Um, this was introduced in the House of Representatives by Congresswoman Meng of New York. Um, she introduced it with bipartisan support from her colleagues, um, Representative uh, Dean Phillips, um, Representative uh, Susan Brooks and Representative John Curtis. Um, we have two Democrats and two Republicans on the bill, which really shows how um, important the bipartisan angle is um, and, and that youth peace and security is not really, a, it's not a partisan issue. It's something that everybody should get behind and um, to help improve our world. Can you walk us through some key points of the YPS Act? Um, you know, first and foremost, um, it would passing of this legislation would actually render the United States the first country um, in the world to pass legislation that recognizes the role of youth on this scale, which would be really important. Um, it would be the first country to integrate youth peace and security into its national security policies. Um, the bill also as a whole recognizes the agency of youth and peace and security and requires an interagency YPS strategy. Um, right now, you know, all of the youth strategies within the US government are a bit scattered and they don't talk to each other. And, um, you know, it might be duplicative or conflicting even. So this would require um, interagency cooperation to get it right. Um, it also establishes a youth peace and security fund, which creates a dedicated funding stream to support youth-led programs and initiatives. Um, it establishes a youth coordinator or youth advisor that's based in USAID, who would be responsible for all of this U.S. government youth funding and activities. And what's really exciting, too, is that it creates an advisory group of experts um, this group of experts would um, include a, a large number of youth and would be bringing in these youth to guide the program development and what's necessary. Oftentimes, you know, youth organizations uh, are told like, hey, here's your indicators and here's your activities and go do it, go forth. And they don't have any input on um, what actually is going to work in their community. What is, you know, what are their indicators for sustainable peace? So what are their indicators for declining violence? Um, so it would really bring youth to the table in that development. Um, it supports youth peace builders through an emergency assistance fund, um, which provides protection for youth peace builders who are often targeted um, for their work around the world. Um, and then also importantly, it, you know, one of the kind of not specific policy things about it, but one of the really important pieces of the bill um, is that it supports the equal access of youth as well as the girls and young women um, to U.S. foreign assistance aid distributions and mechanisms, um, you know, getting 
assistance from the U.S. government is often a very laborious process. It has a lot of criteria, has a lot of, um, you know, a lot of youth organizations don't always have the know-how on how to write a really great grant proposal that, you know, bigger organizations are able to just kind of whip up. Um, so it really grants them much better access to be able to do these things. And then, as I mentioned, um, really ties in young girls and young women who often are excluded from both the YPS and the women peace and security movements as well. The USAID, or United States Agency for International Development, has had its fair share of criticisms on how the aid is distributed and how it enforces U.S. foreign policy. During the Trump administration, the USAID's Twitter page changed its mission statement from USAID works to end extreme global poverty and enable resilient democratic societies to realize their potential, to we advance U.S. national security and economic prosperity, demonstrate American generosity, and promote self-reliance and resilience. The United States Agency for International Development was modeled post-World War II to reduce poverty and to win international hearts and minds, and to provide consumers for U.S. goods during the Cold War. This information was gathered from an NPR article that reads U.S. Most Controversial Foreign Aid Shakeup, published last year. Now, under the Biden administration, the USAID website quotes Biden as saying, When we invest in economic development of countries, we create new markets for our products and reduce the likelihood of instability, violence, and mass migrations. Some scholars and activists would object to such a stance, such as Harl Shawalia, author of Undoing Border Imperialism, where one of the claims is that the economic frameworks of imperialism and colonialism, such as those from the United States, exacerbate further displacement and violence. The YPS bill would affect everyone, and while the USAID has its issues of how it uses its funds and how it enforces foreign policy, it should not undermine its importance and focus on youth worldwide. The creation of the youth advisory or coordinator within the USAID helps create a safeguard for the YPS initiative to prevent the instrumentalization of youth for other than peacebuilding initiatives. It achieves this through advising on the how-tos of the YPS initiative and monitoring its economic pipelines to better serve youth abroad. And like you said, everybody's affected by this bill. And the reality of the youth peace and security agenda is that it's not a youth agenda, it's a people's agenda. Uh, the world is currently facing a youth bulge, meaning that we currently have the largest population of young people in human history. And when you look at the U.S.'s involvement in overseas peace and security efforts, target countries include Ethiopia and Afghanistan and South Sudan, which all have populations of young people that are overscoring the majority population, reaching nearly 60 to 70 percent. And when we talk about young people uh, within the bill specifically, we're looking at youth between the ages of 18 and 29. And why it is that age range is for a number of reasons. One being there's already so much out there supporting children and adolescents below the age of 18, um, specifically within childhood development. And then when you look at the way uh, foreign aid is given to adults, um, it's usually prioritized to elder adults, um, people who are more established, more educated, and actually have access to funding mechanisms that the U.S. government puts out. And so that leaves young people between the ages of 18 and 30 in this weird weighthood and stuck period where they're not considered adolescents, but they're also not considered adults, meaning they don't get access to some of these really important funds and foreign aid, which is why this bill is so important. 
It removes systemic barriers to their access. It creates dedicated funding specifically for them. However, it also recognizes that children below the age of 18 are also affected by violence and need support and that adults also need support. So it's not necessarily neglecting. And so if the U.S. is really looking for a cohesive global security strategy, it can't do so without engaging young people. Uh, For example, the global fragility strategy is really meant to support uh, fragility programming in a number of countries who have majority youth populations. The U.S. would be giving funds directly to these young people, but it cannot do so without removing these systemic barriers. So again, this bill becomes something that's cohesive and impacts U.S. foreign policy and security all across the board and is truly a people's agenda. The idea behind supporting youth for peace building initiatives is that it provides avenues for sustainable peace. Thus, while there is a large youth population currently living around the world, the focus of the act, as Mina will add, is to address and resolve systemic barriers for youth that inhibit them from participating in peace building. The YPSK statement states that respect for youth civil and political rights such as freedom of expression, access to safe spaces for activism, enables factors for youth's positive resilience and contributes to peace. The case statement further illustrates examples where youth were at the forefront of successfully executing peace initiatives within their communities, achieving community cohesion. In some Latin American countries, where youth are involved in gangs and organized crime, young people are manipulated and mobilized by elders and political elites trying to further their own agendas. However, despite this, it is a fact that many youth undertake courageous and creative initiatives to reduce organized crime and youth participation in violent gangs or extremist groups. Another cited example is in the United States where Cure Violence Safe Streets programming in Baltimore worked with former gang members and extremist groups to mediate conflicts. These former members served as role models for young people. As a result, young participants were less likely to support the use of guns for settling disputes than those who resided in neighborhoods without safe streets programming. The trends are the same elsewhere. In Brazil, martial arts coupled with education, providing after-school assistance, vocational training, education about discipline and self-control, as well as sportsmanship, have found success which resulted in expanding similar services to 25 other countries. It must be noted that the word violence used in the YPS Act is broadly defined and does not pertain only to physical violence, sexual or gender-based violence. Chris, to your point, uh, our when we talk about youth peace and security, we're looking at violence from a very holistic angle. So not just physical threats, but psychosocial threats, emotional threats, uh, um, and threats from all around financial security, prosperity. Oftentimes, young people are victims of all of that. They can also be perpetrators of all of this violence, but they're oftentimes more so victims of this violence. And so the Youth Peace Security Act would fund young people's capability to counter that violence in their communities and amongst their peers. So it's not necessarily going and giving money to INGOs, but really through a youth empowered approach, helping young people do this work on their own because only young people know their problems better than anyone else. So for example, a lot of young people work on trauma and resilience work in their communities. And a lot of the recipients of these funds are gonna be uh, dedicating a lot of their funds to specifically trauma, trauma healing and resilience work. 
and, and another case that we're going to give funds to young people who work specifically on countering violent extremism, so physical harm and physical threats. In another case, we would probably be giving funds to young women working on sexual violence and, uh, and threats based on gender violence, right? So it's very dynamic and it's very holistic. And what is key here is that through the uh, advisory group of experts that will be overseeing the distribution of these funds, um, they will determine specifically which of these young people working on which of these topics that are most important in that country context will actually get these funds. So again, taking that very holistic approach to protection, to security, and to violence will really ensure that violence is prevented and transformed in, from a variety of different angles as opposed to just one, which is how we often think about violence, right? Through physical threats and physical means. By framing the word violence from this much more broadly defined basis, systemic barriers all-encompassing can be addressed. Some of the challenges faced by advocates of the bill and youth in general pertain to the propagation of harmful stereotypes of youth with the multiplicity of intersections. Some examples cited in the YPS case statement revolve around how violent conflict is usually explained in the combination of injustice, horizontal inequality, identity factors, and at times, youth are framed as the perpetrators of violence. The cornerhouse.org.uk is an organization founded in 1997 that aims to support democratic and community movements for environmental and social justice all-encompassing. The organization published an academic piece tackling some of the stereotypes faced by youth. An Angry Young Men, Veiled Young Women by Anna Hendrickson states that youth bulged theory in the eyes of Western demographers, military analysts, and intellectuals, the youth bulge has a double aspect. In countries where education and employment for large proportions of young people is available, such as the global north, the youth bulge is looked at as a bonus. On the other hand, the youth bulge in the global south highlights a political hazard that is a threat to social and economic stability. The youth bulge theory was developed by Gary Fuller in 1985. Gary Fuller was a visiting scholar to the Central Intelligence Agency's Office of Global Issues. The analysis was supposed to provide the CIA with a tool to predict unrest and uncover potential threats to United States security. Fuller's erroneous perception of youth is attributed to racial bias. From his perspective, he viewed it as a power and numbers game, and his analysis was erroneously misconstrued by racial, cultural, and gender-based stereotypes. It viewed the bulge of youth as devoid for the potential of positive change. As such, it justified U.S. military interventions, promoted U.S. population control initiatives, and justified the surveillance of Muslims and Arabs within the U.S. borders. Anne explains that most writings on the youth bulge theory simply assume that it is common sense without critically exploring its foundations or testing whether it is credible in various cultural or historical contexts. This is a huge issue because within this scope, the continuance and support of hard-based securitizing methods for youth are justified, an issue that the YPS Act seeks to rectify. However, while the interpretation of youth bulge by Fuller is incorrect and shows evident racial bias, the fact remains and is stated in the YPS Act in Section 2.1 that there are currently 1.8 billion youth in the world and it's the largest number to have ever existed. And, you know, Chris, statistically, as we jump into statistics, only 2.2% of parliamentarians worldwide 
are under the age of 30. In the United States, the current Biden-Harris administration, probably one of the most progressive administrations this country has seen, has one of the oldest administrations. Um, Every single cabinet member currently is above the age of 35, yet it was young people in the United States who changed this election, specifically young Black Americans who voted, who mobilized, who organized with sweat and tears to really make that happen. So what does that say about us as a country, right? We're over here with this really great global bill, yet we're not practicing what we preach uh, in action. And especially when it comes to representation, uh, we really try to look at youth peace and security through an intersectional lens, which means that we're not just looking at it in a binary lens with young people as men and women are black and white, or, 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 but we're really looking at them as young and as young people who have various gender identities and sexual identities and religious identities and ethnic identities. And especially in the United States, we're looking at them with even more complex identities because we truly are a melting pot. I myself, for example, um, am an Afghan American, first generation young woman, And so that diversity and that intersectionality plays a really big role in my ability to even do advocacy. The advocacy landscape in DC is highly privileged, highly white, highly uh, socioeconomically privileged for richer people. And that plays a really important role here too. And with the coalition, we try our hardest to bring in people from different diverse backgrounds to advocate. And especially when it comes to violence, it's hard to do this kind of advocacy without bringing those who are directly affected by violence on the front lines. And that's key, not just because of representation and diversity, but because this bill and any other type of legislation or policy fixes that we have are gonna directly impact those young people who are affected by violence. And without that intersectional approach that takes us beyond binaries, we literally cannot do this effectively or properly. You know, one of the other things too is is the or one sorry, one of the other challenges too is that um, a lot of a lot of people don't see the need for this movement now. They don't see the prioritization of why YPS now. We have COVID going on. We have everything that's happened in the U.S. government over the past couple of years. Um, we've had um, you know there's just there's so much other stuff going on, and it, it's it's you know a lot of people are you know we'll we'll meet with um, offices in Congress that so will meet with, um, you know, other av- advocacy organizations or, or whatnot. And, you know, the questions, you know, one of the questions is always, what's the proof and why do we have to care about this now? And I think those are some really tough challenges because, um, I mean, we, we, ha- we know why we have to care about it now because, um, you know, youth are now and they're tomorrow as, as we've kind of been saying this whole time. And, um, you know, just because, you know, not investing in youth now we'll just, you know, increase post-violence costs, basically, you know, reconstruction and, um, you know, humanitarian assistance and emergency um, aid and everything like that, um, that could be avoided if you, if we, um, or, or mitigated more if we invested in youth now. And then one thing, I think the peace building field as a whole, and Mina, I'm sure you probably feel me on this too, you know, it's hard to, um, it's hard to say that it's hard to, to prove that you are, are doing something when the whole point of what you're doing is to prevent, 
something from happening. Um, and, and that's the whole point of peace building is also conflict prevention. So one of the, the challenges too is people asking for asking for those statistics that don't are that are sometimes difficult to find. And we are we're working on um, you know creating that evidence and how these youth programs and youth leaders are um, you know doing their the work that they're doing and, and bringing in youth and having youth be empowered and able to lead on these programs and initiatives really does um, improve communities and improve um, you know prevent conflict. I think Megan hit the nail on the head with that. Just to, to, to very quickly add that the reality is that this is the most informed generation in world history. We can literally go on our cell phones and Google any stat, statistic, fact, historical event that we want, and it's at the tip of our fingers. And yes, there are disparities in digital access among young people themselves, but that doesn't negate the fact that we're still the most informed generation in world history. And so, and on top of all of that, young people play a specifically unique role that elder people can never fill. Because young people are informal in the way that they act, in the way that we act, I should say, um, we're able to access knowledge and credibility in spaces where for formal actors like governments can't. For example, with the COVID-19 pandemic, if you go to countries like Nigeria or Sudan um, or Afghanistan, for example, where they're being hit the worst, it's young people who are going into communities, translating and explaining things um, that elder people can't do. Uh, Search has a, a radio program in South Sudan called Youth Talk, where young people go around in a car and blast the radio from the car, talking about very basic things like washing your hands and staying six feet apart and wearing masks. That's something a government cannot do and will not do. And so from the tiniest things like that to the larger things like completely shaping an election, like the last US election, young people are active and they're important. And if you look at US history, and world history, every single major social and justice movement was spearheaded and led by youth. We just celebrated Martin Luther King's uh, uh, holiday. He himself was a young activist. He started his activism from a very young age and the entire, entire civil rights movement was a ton of young people. So it's completely false, inaccurate, and a, a mis, uh, an inaccurate representation of the reality of social change to say that young people don't know anything. Because the reality is we know everything and we're running the show. You're just taking credit for the work that we're doing. Like we mentioned earlier, right, we are currently seeing the largest population of young people in world history, and that goes all across the board. And so historically speaking, by focusing on age, we're already putting ourselves in a very historic framework because never before have we ever looked at actors of change through an age lens. We've always looked at it from a, from a very different type of lens, like a, a racial lens or, or a gender lens and different lenses, but never before have we looked at it from an age lens. And if we really study social movements also, as I mentioned earlier, it's all young people, it's students, right? Um, in, in, East, uh, in Eastern Europe, it was young people who spearheaded the movements against fascism. In the US, it was young people who spearheaded the movement for racial justice. In India, it was young people who were fighting nonviolently for partition from the UK. And so it's really always been young people. And so as we, really take this youth peace security lens to understand how young people act in spacious spaces of social change will better understand how previously these social movements have really impacted. And here's the other thing, young people are currently sitting at the convergence of a number of different crises, not just COVID-19, 
but increasing wealth gaps between the rich and the poor, um, increasing disparities between people amongst race and ethnic lines all around the world. We're seeing um, politics become more corrupt and oligarchic than ever, right? And because young people are the ones who are actively spearheading this change on the ground in their communities, but are not represented in politics and parliaments, that's gonna lead to frustration. And that's gonna lead to a lot of anger to the systems that are broken. Because one thing that we've seen this past year is that these systems are not working, right? Our healthcare system, our economic systems, our justice systems are completely broken and shattered. And it's literally gonna depend on young people, whether we're gonna take the democratic and nonviolent approach to solve those problems, or if we're gonna take the violent approach. And literally just two weeks ago, some young people decided it was gonna be the violent, the violent approach in the US Capitol. And it's on us to restore civic discourse and decide that we're gonna take this historic moment and capitalize on peace and collaborative action as opposed to violence. So we not only have to learn from the past, but we also have to think on how to capitalize on this moment to write the history books that we're living. Thank you for that, Mina. We have covered a ton of material regarding the YPS Act, its history, a little about the ideologies that informed it, what it seeks to achieve, and how it will achieve these goals. We have also emphasized that it is important to challenge the narrative and start seeing the youth as themselves agents of positive change in the world. As we conclude this podcast, Megan, can you articulate for us some more information regarding H.R. 6174, also known as the YPS Act. Can you update us as to where it is, where it is going, short-term and long-term prospects of the act? No, of course. So as I mentioned, so um, this bill was introduced last year in 2020. Um, actually, it was introduced like a few days before the entire United States went virtual um, because of COVID-19. Um, so its timing could not have been more in the middle of everything. But um you know, so what we're looking at now is so now that we are in the new Congress, we're looking, you know, we're working with Representative Meng's office to get the bill reintroduced. Um, we so unfortunately, um, one of our lead Republican co-sponsors who is really passionate um, about youth, um, Representative Susan Brooks, um, she actually retired at the end of last Congress. Um, but she was such a champion. She actually spoke at Alliance for Peace Cons, uh, Alliance for Peace Buildings. Um, PeaceCon um, conference. She was one of our plenary speakers um, and she spoke with um, alongside Representative Meng and she spoke directly to youth peace builders from around the world um, about, um, you know, what the bill is and, and, you know, how these youth that she was speaking with would benefit from the bill and what it's what it should look like and hearing their perspective. So we were sad to lose her um, this year, actually, during the January 6th attack on the Capitol, Representative Fitzpatrick, um, he actually was um, locked in his office with his staff and decided that, you know, after all, you know, in the midst of all of the events going on, realized that peace building was really necessary. Um, it, it was really kind of the, the way forward. Um, you know, for preventing this kind of conflict and, and for building peace among communities. Um, so he decided to become a co-sponsor on the Youth Peace and Security Act. So he is a Republican from Pennsylvania. Um, so we're super excited that we're going to be able to reintroduce the bill with um, bipartisan support still with our two um, Democrat representatives and our two Republican uh, representatives that are all really, really passionate about this. Um, and then, you know, we're also working with 
um, offices in the Senate. Um, it hasn't yet been introduced in the Senate, but we are working with them to, you know, make sure the bill language is, um, is you know, similar as can be in the Senate and, um, make sure it gets introduced there as well. In short term, you know, so we're working with the USYPS coalition and we're working with a bunch of different organizations within um, to advocate to Congress and to advocate globally and also, you know, within the United States on the importance of the YPS movement. One of the most obvious wins is, of course, passage of the YPS Act, getting a vote on it in Congress after it's reintroduced and introduced in the Senate. Um, Yeah, so getting it voted on in Congress and eventually just passed um, is a humongous win. Um, but then it, that's kind of where the hard part comes in. And that's where we, um, you know, as our organizations and as a coalition, will continue to work with the government um, and the administration and ensuring that the, you know, the ultimate YPS strategy um, isn't just a strategy that you can pick off the shelf and use when you want, but it's something that's incorporated throughout the whole of government. Um, it's incorporated with the global fragility strategy. It's incorporated with the women, peace and security strategy. That way all of, you know, these, these strategies are, you know, not to overcomplicate things and that they're, they're talking to each other and um, implementation successful. Um, you know, the U.S. isn't going um, and starting programs in countries without knowing what those communities need and that, you know, youth are, are much more, um, you know, included in the, in the process of, of all of the programming and the, the grants and, and such. Um, I'll also add too, um, you know, and just like the mobilization of youth, I think, um, such as such as Butler, I think we have a lot of, you know, really great youth networks of students and, and young people um, that are really interested and involved in the coalition. You know, they're writing op-eds, um, you know, they're meeting with their um, Congress people, their, their um, Congress representatives. Um, they are putting out on social media what YPS means to them. They're making connections and they're, you know, doing their work for advocacy. So um, I think that, you know, the the continuation of the mobilization of of the youth population, not only in, you know, in the world as well as the United States, I think is also another um, thing I see in the short term that I think is really exciting to look forward to. Uh, I'll also add one exciting thing we're doing in the in Congress this year is spearheading the appropriations process. And for those who aren't familiar with legislative processes as much, um, the current YPS Act is an authorization bill, meaning that it authorizes the YPS fund and it gives like the green light and okay to actually do this work with the bill. Whereas the appropriations process is going to actually be allocating the money necessary to make it happen. Um, So it's kind of two different legislative processes. Uh, Representative Meng is an appropriator, so she sits on the House uh, House Appropriations Committee, so she's really leading that process, and um, we're lucky to have her expertise on that, and so on our end, we're really going to try to support as much as we can through providing the data, the facts, the statistics on what the actual cost and return on investment of youth peace building really is. Um, kind of picking up on what Megan said with short-term goals and looking forward, we really have four main objectives. One, collaboration. So making sure that we're laying domination for the necessary um, knowledge, platforms, and approach for civil society youth in the U.S. government to support implementation of the agenda. And then advocacy, of course. Three, movement building and then communications. And I'm going to really uh, unpack some, because Megan unpacked more of the, the direct immediate advocacy goals that we have. But the end goal with all of this, right, is to not only get policy out there to change U.S. foreign policy, um, but it's also to mobilize young people for peace building. We 
we keep talking about the power of young people, especially in the US, but even though young people are leading the movement for racial justice and climate and so many other issues, they're not leading the movement for uh, global security. And the advocacy space within foreign policy is really, really low. There are some some super great networks like STAND, um, the student-led movement to end mass atrocity, who is one of our key coalition members right now. Um, but it really needs to, our youth engagement really needs to scale up so that we create a culture of advocacy, interest, and awareness around U.S. foreign policy. Um, a recent ICRC report uh, shared that 75% of millennials believe that most wars can be prevented. And the youngest member of Congress right now, Madison Cawthorn, always talks about how these like hard global security approaches we've been taking over the past decade have not been working. And so not only is this a really common sense and uh, widespread knowledge amongst our generation, but it's also something that people from across the aisle and political divides believe in. So the momentum, and as Megan mentioned, that really great story with Representative Fitzpatrick, the momentum is there. And so long-term, we really want to mobilize and catalyze on this on this momentum to make sure that we're changing U.S. foreign policy for the better. And the second really big piece in all of this is translating the youth peace security movement to a domestic context, really trying to see what we can do to increase youth inclusion and participation in conflict prevention in the U.S., right? Um, like we said, some young people chose to use violence um, in the U.S. Capitol, but that's not the direction we should be going down as a society and as a country. Um, we really need to change the landscape for racial equity and take a youth peace security lens against uh, racial violence and ethnic violence and gender-based violence because this is something that's affecting young Black people across the country, young Latino people across the country and young black women, especially across the country. So without taking that age lens to conflict prevention, it's going to be really hard to move forward. Um, and we've seen this happen all around the world where taking that age lens really helps. And it's, it's time, I think, for the for the United States to kind of take a step back and look to see what the world has done to do this. And the USYPS coalition is a part of the global coalition on youth peace and security, which brings young people from around the world to really talk about these issues um, and to really coordinate and collaborate and learn from one another. So. We're really hoping in the long term to lay down the groundwork for domestic YPS um, and also connect young Americans with young people around the world to, to reverse learn what it means to prevent violence and build peace in their own communities. As the YPS Act continues to gain traction within the United States government to support youth in peace building abroad, Mina just mentioned there is a duplicate bill in the works to support youth-based peace activism within the United States. This is truly important because youth-based organizing is essential, as we have said, to peace sustainability and longevity. So in summary, the Youth Peace and Security Act, also known as H.R. 6174, will recognize the agency of youth in peace and security while protecting their physical safety, economic security, and dignity. It will ensure U.S. peace and security efforts abroad last intergenerationally and break cycles of violence through meaningful partnering with youth populations. It will create a dedicated funding stream with global authority to support young people's contributions to peace building, conflict prevention, and sustainable peace through a youth peace and security fund. It will establish a youth coordinator based in USAID to oversee U.S. government interagency strategy, youth funding, and activities. 
And it will also create an advisory group of experts to ensure that the perspectives and interests of young people are integrated into the design and execution of US-funded peace and security activities and strategies. While the YPS Act for the moment focuses on youth peacebuilding abroad, we must remember that there is an interconnectivity between us all. Thus, there are ways that you can contribute to the efforts of Mina and Megan and the organizations they work with. For example, um, the Friends Committee on National Legislation, FCNL, um, created a, an online petition to reach out to your Congress member um, based off of your address, of course, um, explaining you know why YPS and that they should support the YPS agenda, which is great. Um, another really good resource, as Mina mentioned earlier, is Stand. They have a lot of resources on the website and they're a humongously wide student-led movement looking into into their resources and such is always really smart to be able to one as a young person advocate but then also they have a lot of resources to advocate for yps anyone can be a champion um, of youth peace and security and everyone as we've talked about through this entire thing benefits from the inclusion of youth into um, all of these policies and all of this decision making um, and then finally what i'll mention before passing it along to mina um, is that our us YP, yps coalition is um is open you know we um you know we take and you know organizations that are interested in joining us um we're always happy to have a conversation um you know we, we're always looking for organizations to endorse the legislation it makes it a much stronger case to congress um and it makes us much stronger case to to the world when you have such a large group of organizations um supporting this movement yeah megan laid some really concrete ways to get involved um i'm gonna add just two things super quickly one is to start brainstorming and thinking about uh yps in your communities it's really easy to get lost in the hardcore advocacy but really this comes down to how you interact with people in your communities and advocate for peace right it's so easy for me to go fight with my brother and like want to punch him in the face when he does something that pisses me off but it's really about taking a step back and saying okay punching him is not going to solve this problem and it's going to make our relationship more complicated so think about how you can apply yps in your day-to-day -day life um and we're always looking for ideas like Megan mentioned. So email either of us or anyone else in the YPS coalition, follow us on social media. Um, I'm gonna put in a plug for my Twitter and my Instagram. The US YPS coalition has a Twitter and Facebook page. Um, we're really active. We also have a LinkedIn. So we're always constantly posting opportunities for internships and fellowships and ways to get involved. And we'd be happy to connect those of you who are passionate and excited about YPS with the right opportunities. Um, and lastly, Chris, I also want to say, and feel free to include this or edit this out, uh, but it's really hard to sometimes convince people to advocate for global security when our own country is in a very fragile political environment. And I think one thing COVID taught us all is how how deep the translocality of our lives is. And what I mean by translocal is we live both online and offline lives, but we're really living that online life right now. And we are seeing firsthand how something all halfway across the world can impact us in our own community and vice versa. And when we think about building a better world for everybody, the reality is that our generation acts on compassion and acts 
some lending a, a helping hand. And we can never expect other people like the world to help us if we don't first go and help them. And not only will this advocacy make the world a better place and make the U.S. a stronger uh, advocate for peace and security worldwide, but it will help us as young people lay down the foundation to improve our own situation in our country. When the time comes that we introduce a piece of legislation or policy to increase the number of young people in Congress or in local legislative um, processes and local councils and, and all across the country, um, this is going to lay that, that foundation for that. And so we're taking the first step to do that and to really raise our voice. Just on Sunday, a group of, I want to say 18 or 16 youth-led organizations in the United States sent a letter to the Biden-Harris administration calling for more inclusion in the administration. So saying we sh uh, calling for an office of youth engagement, having an advisor on youth um, and many other things to really increase the number of young people. And so we're already taking the steps forward, but we can't do it without also thinking about our brothers and sisters around the world. Megan and I talk about this all the time is that we're not reinventing the wheel here, right? We took what young people have done globally and we're trying to get young people who do this already, right? From racial justice to climate, to queer rights, to indigenous rights, all of it. Like young people are already peace builders and advocating for peace and just trying to bring everyone together to make it collective. And the Alliance for Peace Building, the organization Megan works for, that's their motto and their theory of change that nobody can ever do this work alone and advocate for peace and justice alone. It has to happen. Through a collective of people like me and you. My name is Christopher LPR. Thank you for joining us in this episode. I hope that you take with you three very important points. Peace building goes beyond activism. It goes beyond congressional bills. It goes beyond theory. The way of peace is a way of life. Secondly, we are all interconnected and the running thread is that our history is accumulative and as such, we must consider where we are within the world in geographical space and imagined spaces. Lastly, this work cannot be done alone. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Desmond Tutu Peacecast at Butler University. The Desmond Tutu Peace Lab will be hosting a panel for the discussion of the YPS Act on March 24th, 2021 at 5 p.m. over Zoom. The panel will cover YPS historical origins and peace building on a broad scope. Mina and Megan will be there to answer some of your questions along with other panelists who have worked with or around the YPS initiative or with youth peace building around the globe. For more information, visit our Instagram page at bu underscore desmond22peacelab and check out the link in bio. Please also feel free to visit any of the links available with this podcast. It was a pleasure sharing space with you. Until next time, peace.